We talk about the oil industry as though it was just one thing, but it isn't. Even within the UK, it's complicated. There are plenty of oil rigs in the North Sea, but much of what they produce never touches British soil. And at the same time, oil from the Middle East is transported all the way here to be pumped and churned and processed in refineries, like the huge Grangemouth refinery near Edinburgh, which processes thousands of litres of crude oil every hour. And yet there's more. The most lucrative part of the UK oil and gas industry is the oil trading floor at Canary Wharf in London, because this is one of the key global hubs for the exchange of oil in return for money. The price of oil passing through those pipes near Grangemouth is set on the global oil market based on trading in London or far away in Singapore and New York. And it's swayed by international politics, conflict, regulation and speculation that the UK government has very little control over. The end of oil means that all of this has to stop. But in the process of winding down, the ripples it creates in the rest of society are going to be different in every part of this huge interlinked system. It's time to look at what that means for everyone involved and how the end of oil could and should come about. Welcome to Tides of Transformation, an oil story, a podcast from Intelligence Squared. I'm Helen Chersky. Now that it's time for the oil industry to go, we're realising that many of us don't know much about the vast fabric of physical infrastructure, political and human relationships and international ties that needs to be dismantled. Throughout this podcast series, we've been drawing on recent research undertaken with the support of the Economic and Social Research Council and with input from experts inside and outside the industry. We've been digging into the details of structure, ownership and control, and today, in the final episode, our aim is to make sense of what this all means for the end of oil. How should we frame our thinking and how do we make the necessary changes as quickly, fairly and effectively as possible? Joining me are our panellists for today, James Marriott of Platform London and the co-author of Crude Britannia, How Oil Shaped a Nation, and Connor Watt from the London School of Economics. James and Connor have spent the past four years researching the UK oil sector as part of a project called Fraying Ties. And also joining us is climate and human rights lawyer Tessa Khan, the executive director of the environmental campaign group Uplift UK. So let's start with the big questions. What is the desirable outcome here? You know, what does it mean to end the use of oil above, beyond, you know, the sort of consumer end of we won't see much oil around anymore. What, 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 does it, what does it mean to end it? What impact is it going to have on society more widely? Well, it means very different things in very different parts of that oil complex that you referred to in the, in the introduction there. As we understand it, the oil complex has a set of different areas. There's the place of extraction, that's the oil rigs offshore, the place of refining, the place of retail and consumption, that's the petrol stations and, 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 and the places where we fill up planes. The place of finance, which is the financing of oil. And the place of trading, which is the trading of oil, which you, which you referred to before. And the ending of oil in all of those different places, all those different parts of the complex, will look very different and will have different impacts. And it's important that we understand the, that complexity rather than just thinking it's in one of these sectors. We need to see it in all of those five sectors and to see that those changes will impact people differently in different ways. 
And Connor, could you set out the ways people will be interested? I mean, because people use plastics, for example, that come from oil and people have jobs in the oil industry. What, how, what's this look like for people, the end of oil? Yes. Well, as James said, there are these different elements to the UK oil industry and it's so much bigger than just the offshore. And I think what we have to understand is that each of those elements has an idea of how this comes to an end in a very different way in a different time scale and with very, very different consequences. Um, for some of those elements of the UK oil complex, the writing's almost on the wall. Discussions are already being had about how offshore oil production comes to an end and what the consequences of that are and some plans about transition and what might be done. For other sections of the oil complex, like trading or finance, there isn't really so much of a discussion around transition. It's more that what is finance may be slightly different or the commodities which are traded shift and change. And, and Tessa, from your point of view, what's, what's a desirable outcome here? Well, a good outcome is an end to oil that is at a sort of speed and that unfolds in such a way that we have outcomes that are consistent with what's needed for a safe climate and stabilising global temperatures at you know, 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels, which is what global, globally the agreement that governments have signed up to is, and you know, which I should also say is an important threshold in terms of protecting us from the worst impacts of climate change. But it also, I think, requires outcomes that are just as well for all of the people who will be affected by the massive industrial transition, as we've heard from Connor and James, that that, that, that will involve. So let's look at the range of options here. So I just want to paint a picture of what does this look like if we do it well and what does it look like if we do it badly? Perhaps, James, we could come back to you. Perhaps the most challenging part is the oil trading part. If things go badly, then essentially what may happen is that the UK reduces all its oil and gas production in the North Sea. It reduces a lot of its consumption on land, say, for example, with using a lot more electric vehicles and public transport. But at the self-same time, we re remain one of the global energy hubs because both these things can be done at the same time. We could become a net, net zero country and yet be the most, one of the most engaged states in oil, oil, oil trade and oil financing globally. And that's a bad outcome because basically that means we're not going to be tackling the overall aim that we need to do, which is just as Tessa referred to, which is reducing CO2 emissions and keeping within that 1.5. So a bad outcome is that we become net zero in the UK, but remain a major oil trader and financer. And Connor and Tessa, have you got anything to add? Yeah, I think there's a major risk that we stretch out the end point of oil in part, different parts of these complexes in different ways. Many of these um, discussions around the end points of oil are based on how we can increase and extend that endpoint into the future indefinitely. So as part of our research in Fraying Ties, we've spoken to all sorts of different people who are involved in the UK oil sector, from people who work on the rig floors to people who work on boats, all the way up to CEOs, people who manage these companies who invest in them and who own them. And last winter in Aberdeen, I was at a meeting on a really snowy day. There was about two foot of snow, which covered the whole of Aberdeen, at this meeting with lots of different big players in the UK oil and gas industry. And it was just after Liz Truss had announced the 33rd licensing round. And there was a really palpable sense of shock and surprise in the room that that had happened. I think for most of the people there, for most of the people who direct our oil industry, they assume that offshore is already over or it's going to come to a very rapid end. 
And so all of these kind of elements which extend that timeline, there's a real danger in that. Tessa, yeah, go on. Yeah, just to add, I mean, from my perspective, I guess taking a step back, the choice between a good and a bad outcome is a choice between a managed transition or one where you have a kind of chaotic, slightly deferred collapse of the industry. Because what we are seeing at the moment is with high oil prices, which are driven by all sorts of different factors, geopolitical demand, etc., we're likely to see highly volatile oil and gas prices in the years to come. And there will be incentives for the oil and gas industry to continue to expand production for as long as they think that they'll be getting good returns. And so what we're at real risk of with big oil and gas projects in particular, so for example, the Rosebank oil field, which the UK government recently approved, is you get these multi-decade projects that if we actually look at what's required on a timeline where we stay within 1.5 degrees of warming is you end up with stranded assets for a lot of these companies. And that means people losing jobs, you know, in a really chaotic scenario, or you could have an outcome as well as, of course, the industry itself losing value in a way that's totally unmanaged. Or the alternative outcome is where, you know, government steps in, sets end dates for things, gives some certainty to investors as well as to the workforce and ensures that we can actually set out a roadmap to transition that whole industry in a way that does have good economic and social outcomes. And Tessa, what's your perspective on the the sort of speed of change here? Because it's really, I mean, it's interesting with, with the COP that's coming up being led by by a major oil producer. It feels like the oil industry is desperately trying to say, oh, but we can have net zero oil. You know, we can take up carbon from the atmosphere. And scientifically, there's just no way to scale that up. Like it, it's a non-starter. We have to decarbonize. And yet the the oil industry, it seems like this massive thing is kind of really dragging its heels here. It doesn't, it, it's like denying everything that might suggest it can't just carry on and from your you know from your perspective and the people you work with why is it all so stuck yeah that's a great question i mean i think at the moment the oil and gas industry is basically in a sort of existential fight where it recognizes that from a climate change perspective you know it has to wind down its current business model in terms of the social pressure that it's getting for everything that it's done in the past to delay the transition which it continues to do now. It's also under a huge amount of public scrutiny. But a lot of these companies just aren't prepared to actually retool their businesses to shift into renewables. And the largest oil and gas producer in the UK, for example, Harbour Energy, has made it absolutely clear that it doesn't have any interest in transitioning to a renewables business. Oil and gas is how it's made its money. That's how it's going to continue to make its money for the foreseeable future. And in fact, about three quarters of oil and gas companies that operate in the North Sea in the UK don't invest anything in UK renewables. And some of those that do are actually just creating renewable energy to, to power their, off, their offshore oil and gas rigs. So, you know, a lot of these companies, oil and gas is all that they've ever done. Yes, in, in theory, you have a lot of the skill sets that would be useful if you're looking to transition but they're incentivized in the short term to continue to make profits from oil and gas. And I think it's a mistake to expect that industry, especially in light of the way that in the last year it's made record profits. And rather than investing those in the transition, they've paid out shareholders, they've doubled down on their current business model. It's a huge mistake, I think, to invest them with the agency and the responsibility for making this transition happen. It's just not going to be them, I don't think. 
Well, let's let's get on to the question of, of how we get to a world without oil. So um, we've got a view on this from the former chair of the Climate Change Committee, uh, which was an independent body set up to advise the UK government on tackling and preparing for climate change. And, and the chair is Lord Deben, and this is what he had to say. But the 2050 net zero date is the best date that anyone can produce as being realistic and uh, affordable. Both those things are essential if governments are going to act. The first thing is, of course, not getting the grid under control so that people can actually get the electricity that they need. And that change is very urgent. The second central issue is the government must move much faster in helping people to be able to move from using gas for heating to using uh, electricity, and that is a crucial change, and the government has got no sensible policy to do that, uh, but there are lots of people out there who would like to make the change. We've got to help them by giving them the information, and we've got to uh, find a way, uh, which ought to be easy, the government backing the private sector who will provide the money to make those changes. The money is there. It needs a proper program of government. So, I mean, I find that very striking because I hear that a lot in all this, all sorts of discussions about this, the need for a clear framework. It feels like whatever part of the UK, you know, climate space you're operating, people are just saying, look, can someone just give us a framework to work in? Tell us what how it's going to be and then we'll make it happen. So, Connor, who gets to make the decisions now and who should get to make the decisions, the input into this future framework? Well, we've heard in a number of other episodes of Tides of Transformation about who some of these key players are. And a lot of the setup was really established in the late 1970s. As I said before, we made a decision to keep the UK, pop the UK public's interaction with oil at an arm's length. We outsourced the actual technical operations to largely American companies. And then the UK state had a kind of backseat role via the regulator. That meant that the key decision makers were the oil companies themselves. Now, today, the majors, BP and Shell companies like that, are still involved to some degree. But there's a whole new swathe of um, companies which are backed up by private equity or companies who are state oil companies from other countries. And in terms of offshore production, those are largely the people who make the decisions with some kind of limited intervention from the regulator that we heard about. But as we've also heard, there have been all sorts of civil society activist groups who have been able to put pressure on different parts of this complex. So there's the very obvious ones, the kind of activists who make the headlines in the paper, who have really pulled the story into, the, into public debate. But then there are also other kind of more tangential actors, like the shareholder activists who we heard about in the last episode, or even people who take the UK government to state for failing to meet its climate obligations. Yeah, but if I could say it, there's one impact of not having a clear policy framework and a clear vision of where we go next. And I think it makes the discussion of who makes these decisions very, very difficult. So as part of the research, we were able to go on a site visit to Grangemouth, which is a massive refinery that you mentioned at the top of the programme. And when we spoke to workers there, they pointed across the water to Long Gannett coal-fired power station and the partially demolished remains which still exist just across the water and that closed a few years ago and the, the large chimneys were demolished. There was no transition plan there. This used to also be an ex-coal mining community. Lots of those coal mines closed down with no plans for what would happen next. And so I think in this country we have a really poor track record of managing transition and that makes having discussions with people who work in the fossil fuel sector very difficult. 
because they don't have any faith that there may be a future for them. So there's this kind of tension here where we have perhaps civil society, certainly large parts of civil society, basically saying, sort yourselves out, you know, sort yourselves out of existence, basically. And then the people who are working in that sector, either because, you know, they're onto a good thing and they don't particularly want to change or because that's their job and they, don't, they haven't got any alternative jobs. You know, there's a there's a hesitation there. So how do we how do we James, how do we get those voices? Like, how do we make this fair so that we actually get a transition that's rapid, but we also plan for it, manage it? Like, who do we need to listen to? Um, I think it's a, an extremely important and, and, and complicated question in some ways, again, because we need to look at the complex of those five different areas. I agree entirely that we need to make frameworks which help us transition, but not just in the retail and consumption bit, but also in the trading bit and the financing bit, as well as the offshore. The, tr the complicated bit is that, is that different people have different levels of power in relation to those. So traders or uh, finan financiers in the, in the finance sector, investment bankers in the finance sector, have actually quite a lot of power. They're, they're, they're people with quite a lot of voice, whereas people in working on refinery workers, such as Connor mentioned, are people without much voice. And also, we need to find a way of bringing in those voices of all the people who are impacted. And that is a global impact, because all of those people, as we mentioned in the first episode of, of, of Tribes of Transformation, they are actors in a sense. They are stakeholders in the UK oil sector, because if we don't get it right, they will be impacted. They will be further impacted than they are now. I mean, it is true that there's real complexity in terms of all of the different groups of people and the different actors who will be affected and who should be involved in the decision-making. But ultimately, the delivery for the energy transition lies squarely with the UK government, insofar as the UK government is the one with a legal obligation to get us to net zero by 2050. It's, from a human rights perspective, it has obligations to protect UK citizens from the impacts of climate change and to ensure that the energy transition happens in a way that's that's fair. So I think we should be absolutely clear that the kind of key decision maker and the one that we should be holding ultimately responsible for getting this right is the government. And to that end, there are plenty of examples of other governments getting this right in terms of different parts of the energy system moving much faster and in a much fairer way than it had, we've been seeing unfold in the UK. So, for example, there's a group of countries called the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, one of which is Denmark. It was a co-founder of that initiative. That's also a North Sea oil and gas producing country. The Danish government, in a very proactive way, using policy frameworks and industrial policy, actively transitioned Denmark from being an oil and gas producing country into one of now the most powerful and successful offshore wind producers in the world. Equally on the demand side, the UK is literally going slower than almost any of its European counterparts in relation to how well we insulate our homes, you know, the point that Lord Deben was making, the rate at which we're selling electric cars, the rate at which we're rolling out heat pumps in people's properties. This can all be done. It's not beyond the wit of government. But I think it is up to government to come up with an entire economy-wide plan, ensure that that's just in the outcomes that it delivers. And I'm confident that it can get there. So, OK, so we did speak to a politician, to Labour MP Olivia Blake, to see now she's obviously, as we record this, not in government, so not in, in, in the decision-making capacity, but she did have some views on what should happen in the future. I think what we've got to offer at the next election in our manifesto, which is currently under development is a, is a very clear sense of direction 
which I think would be helpful for many reasons. And we've said that we want to be a clean energy power by 2030, clean green energy power. And what that really means is that we want all electricity that's produced in the UK to be from green energy sources. So that's a massive scaling up of what we already have in the UK. So we want to double and triple solar and onshore wind, and we want to massively scale off, scale up offshore wind as well to ensure that we're really using all the resources that we have at our disposal. And that means looking at other industries as well, like tidal and uh, other offers um, from from green resources and massively scaling up things like heat pumps and insulation. And the other thing is GB Energy which would be a state-owned company, you know, that could intervene on things like the grid. It could intervene on production and, and supply. So I think that's a really exciting space for us to be in. So the, the election cycle is relatively short, and yet we're talking about massively long-term issues. You know, you, there's things you need to get right by 2030, but they've also still got to be right by 2050 and 2070. You know, this is really about setting up the next 50 years of UK energy. How would Labour do that? I mean, how do you set this up? How do you set us all up for the next 50 years? Whoever's in government? Yeah, I mean, that that's a challenge. I think not doing what we've been doing the last five, 10 years, which is sending out very mixed signals, is, is would be a good thing. And, and making sure that the infrastructure is there and having that state-owned kind of um, energy company allows us to kind of kickstart where we need to and intervene where we need to, but also gives us the space to make sure that we're building the market that's needed. And the skills that are so important to this need to be there as well. So I've, I was quite pleased at conference that our leader Kia was setting out what his ambitions are for technical skills, because this won't happen without having that skilled workforce. So yeah, big challenges. And I think that it's kind of making sure that we use the Paris Agreement as a kind of framework for what we want to achieve. And then we work back from that point and try and get it done as quickly as possible, which is why we set ourselves that very ambitious target of 2030. And how important do you think it is that there's cross-party agreement in all of this? Because what we're seeing at the moment, I mean, that the environment started off not being a political football at all, really, you know, back in the, when, when scientists first started talking about climate change, it, they just sort of went, oh, here it is. And then it's become more and more of a political football as time has gone on, and now it feels like this is being used as a wedge issue. Yeah, and I think I think that's one of the things that I found so disappointing about the last few weeks is that we had had a kind of consensus amongst the, the major political parties in the UK that this is something that we need to do something about. And the debate was really about how fast you do something about it. But now we're getting to the point where it, it feels a lot more dangerous and it feels like delay seems to be the ambition of, of the current government, which is just inexcusable because the more we delay, the more, ex well, firstly, the more expensive it'll be to deal with the consequences. But also there's a moral obligation on us, now we know the science, to make sure that we're not making the situation absolutely worse. So, so on that point then, there was, there was a recent decision by, by the regulator actually about Rosebank, this massive untapped oil field off the north coast of Scotland, which in the context of everything you said, in the context of this crisis, permission has just been given for oil to be extracted from that site. Is, is Labour, if you go into power in the next cycle, are you going to reverse that decision? 
Well, I'm not on the front bench, but personally, I've written, I've lost count of the number of letters I've written on both Rose Bank, but also the, cold, the coal mines that have been proposed in Cumbria against them. And I think that one of the big disadvantages of the system as it currently stands is communities are pretty voiceless in this. So planning procedures that there are around these issues and the kind of national frameworks around them don't allow for climate to really be considered in, in the way it should. And it has been really disappointing to see like the huge challenge of energy security be used as a way to say, well, that means we need more fossil fuels when the complete opposite is the truth. We've been very clear as a party that we wouldn't, we wouldn't allow any more exploration um, and that what we've got is what we'll use. All right, I'd like to get to the question of language here and this question of the language of transition, first of all, because transition makes it sound like a kind of gradual process. You know, we're sort of going to go along and things are gradually going to change and after a while they're going to look like something else. Whereas actually, you know, to a lot of people, I think that doesn't sound strong enough, right? We'd say we want elimination. So, James, are we being ambitious enough in terms of the language here? I think you're right, which is that a lot of this does take place or is affected by, by language. I think you're also right that we, the transition sounds a bit too genteel and we need to understand that this is a big jump. We need to move radically into renewables and move away from oil. And therefore, we need to grab hold of this shift. But I would take say that there is a degree of optimism in the speed at which that shift is taking place. And that, that speed also lies in language, I think, in a way to echo what, what Tessa was saying there. I find it immensely optimistic thing that in the last, in, over, the, over the period of the North Sea's uh, extraction since 19, late 1960s, there have been literally hundreds of oil fields and gas fields developed. And 99% of those have been far off the, the understanding of most people in the general public. The, even the names of them have been outside general, general public's know, knowledge. But now the terms Rosebank and Cambo are known to us. They are terms which people understand, OK, this is this oil field. It happens. It exists. It's come into the language, despite the fact that 99% of the people will never, ever go and see the piece of sea that Cambo and Rosebank refer to. They've come into the language. And as they come into the language, we grab hold of them as concepts and we say, OK, we can deal with them. And we need to see that happening in other parts of the oil complex. The language needs to grab hold of what is actually happening in the oil trading sector, which is so difficult to understand and, and so dark and so hidden from democratic processes. Something else I think a lot about when we talk about the oil industry is we, we talk a lot about the industry itself, you know, all the things we've been talking about here, refining and producing and, you know, trading and all that kind of stuff. We don't talk so much about our own lives and where, you know, we'll need to find some other materials for quite a lot of the things we do. You know, has anyone got any thoughts on that, like how we people living day to day lives, what will replace oil in, in all of those nooks and crannies? Yeah, I think, you know, the conversation around the energy transition and how we get away from oil and gas often, I think, gets stuck on the questions of the hardest sectors to decarbonize, you know, the ones that we don't currently have answers for. But the fact is that 70% of fossil fuel demand comes from power, road transport, 
and heating. And we do have solutions for those. And in the past with these sorts of transitions, you know, once we solve the easy sectors, we have time to figure out the harder stuff. And I don't think we should ever let ourselves uh, feel deterred from embarking on the challenge by focusing on the bits that are at the moment outside of what we consider is possible because the ceiling of what's possible is constantly rising as the transition happens. So we don't have to try and solve all the problems all at once. That's, we, can, we can worry about the, the biggest, most obvious ones first. Exactly. And there's a, an energy analyst at the Rocky Mountain Institute, Kingsmill Bond, who has a great turn of phrase about this, which is, you know, I don't worry about how my five-year-old daughter is going to pass her maths A-levels. You know, the important thing is that she gets through a kindergarten or, you know, primary school first. And then when she gets to her A-levels, she'll be able to pass them then. I really think we need to focus on the next five years and then the five years after that. And as we've seen, these technologies have gotten cheaper. The technologies themselves have gotten much more efficient and we've had new technological breakthroughs along the way. So there's just no reason to think that that's not the pattern that will continue. Uh, I agree with that, um, which is, and I think there's a danger that to, if we put too much emphasis on how do we move, say, for example, into a hydrogen economy, we, we don't put, that distracts us from, from putting the requisite amount of effort and energy in how do we move out of an oil economy. They're, they're, they're two separate and op but overlapping questions, but they are separate questions. And we need to put our emphasis on how to move out of an oil economy rather than how, for example, to move into a, a hydrogen economy. And because, especially because that second question is endlessly used as a delaying factor to d about not addressing the first question. Oh, so let's let's look at let's just run through some different parts of the UK oil sector then, just in terms of what has to happen and how quickly it might change. So let's let's start at one end and talk about extraction um, and refining. What in practice has to happen in the UK to, to move that along to a no oil situation and how quickly could it happen? For many who actually work offshore, the transition's already taken place in different ways. So I grew up in Aberdeenshire and most of my childhood friends, when they left school, they went to work offshore on rigs and platforms and boats involved with oil. For many of them, they've had careers which have spanned all sorts of different parts of the industry. So they've worked in commissioning of new rigs and platforms or pipelines. They've worked in the drilling floor or the production parts of the industry. They've worked in decommissioning, pulling up uh, pipelines from the sea floor or removing topsides. And some of them have also worked in renewables too. And their career can span all parts of those different um, parts of the industry. So I don't think there's going to be a binary transition from working in oil to working with, to, in renewables. There'll be a kind of hopping back and forth. But one of the big problems is that it's very difficult and there are many inhibitions um, for workers to make that easier. So at the moment, the onus is on workers to retrain themselves. There's a huge um, amount of certificates and tickets that they need in order to jump from working in the fossil fuel industry to working in renewables. And that comes at quite significant costs, thousands of pounds for these um, qualifications for offshore oil workers. It would be very helpful to have a kind of skills passport whereby that ability to jump between these different parts is made easier. There are also parts of the refineries which are undergoing transitions as we speak. So the refinery sector in the UK has, was here long before North Sea Oil was. Grangemouth is almost 100 years old. Some of the other key refineries, like Foley on the south coast, which is our biggest refinery, it was built in the early 1950s. But refineries, as I mentioned before, 
have these particular transition plans. And most of them are based on these kind of reimagined refineries where they'll produce new fuels, mainly hydrogen, and they'll have CCS elements. Now, it's a very complicated technical debate around the efficacy of those technologies. But one thing that it seems that most of the experts on carbon capture and storage are agreed on is that it must not be used just as a mechanism to extend the life of oil production in the UK. But unfortunately, at the moment, the way it's being talked about, it plays that role precisely. It means that um, oil production in the UK, the emissions of which can be, can be stored in these underground subsea deposits. The whole discussion about that, which which drives me mad, actually, as someone who, whose job is to study some parts of the, you know, how carbon comes and goes in the planet. But let's move on to um, trading and finance, and then we'll come to retailing and consumption after that. So, James, on trading and finance, what has to happen and how quickly can it reasonably happen? In, in trading, um, what we should see is a move away from the trading of oil and gas winding down, radically winding down that as a key global commodity. And traders can work in other commodities, but we need to see a shift away from oil and gas as a trading commodity. As soon as I say that, I know that that's one of the most difficult areas of this change to take place, partly because it is by far the most uh, profitable sector of all the oil and gas industry globally, and if you look at, say, the, the majors such as BP and Shell and Exxon, it is their most productive arm. Not Their most profitable arm is not pulling oil and gas out of the ground, but trading in oil. So th those are forces that are extremely resistant to that change. And furthermore, the ability and the strength of gov UK government and international governments to constrain that trading is very limited. It's very difficult and very challenging. But that doesn't mean to say that it needs doesn't can't be tackled and needs to be tackled. And I'm a, I'm a strong believer in, in civil society and the ability of civil society to gain traction on these areas, to bring them in, as I mentioned before, bring them into language and that brings them into political discussion and that brings in the possibility of change there. If we look at finance, it similarly has the same challenge, which is the financing of oil and gas projects around the world is a very, very profitable business for major investment banks and major asset holders, as, as Tessa mentioned earlier. So, for example, BlackRock, which is one of the largest finance houses in the world based in New York, is, is, is a very substantial player in oil and gas around the world. The challenge is, is that, first of all, BlackRock is a very powerful institution and reining that in is very difficult. And secondly, it's always after one thing, which is a return on capital. And therefore, it may make a commitment to decarbonize to some degree, but that commitment is often thrown aside by other events that change, say, for example, the profitability of oil and gas. The challenge is how do we get hold of it? But civil society is doing that to some degree. We see that in shareholder action, as was mentioned in the third of our Tides Transformation discussions, and also for the fact that people are taking action to bring these realities into public discourse. And we see that, say, for example, in the work of Uplift and other NGOs. So let's come on to retail and consumption then very briefly. What has to happen and how quickly can it reasonably happen? Well, the re retail and consumption, that is basically we mean the use of gas and oil products in household, in transport and 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 in the making of the manufacturing of, of processes. Though that area, actually, I think, is 
perhaps the, the, the area that is most tackled. It's the most discussed and most argued about, and we see it in political debate, but there is a great deal of effort into it. It's perfectly easy, as Tesla said, for us to imagine a situation where almost the vast majority of vehicles is uh, EVs and the vast majority of our electricity uses is, is, is from renewables and houses are, are using heat pumps which are not using gas. All of these things are perfectly easy to do. And the political trajectory to that is we can see the pathway to that. We just need the political will to deliver it as it has been delivered and is being delivered in other states in Europe. Okay, well, we're coming, we're almost at the end of this podcast now, but I did just want to cover one last issue because in September, you know, after, you know, as we were recording this podcast, actually, the regulator gave permission to develop the UK's largest untapped oil field off Shetland, and that is Rosebank. And no oil is expected to come out of Rosebank until 2027. Um, And yet it's just been given permission alongside all this discussion about net zero by 2050. And So throughout this series, we've been trying to look beyond extraction and and clarify what happens after extraction. But then there's this decision and it's all about extraction. And it sort of says, well, extraction is alive and well. And and Tessa, I was wondering what you thought about, like, how do we how do we kind of how do we deal with this situation where we're talking about these things? We're talking about this transition or the elimination of oil. And yet here is this government decision that says this oil field, huge oil field, is going to be allowed to produce oil? Well, I think, you know, we have to be very clear that there is no way of reconciling the UK government's purported commitment to keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees and, you know, a net zero target by 2050 with decisions to approve massive new undeveloped oil fields. So, I mean, there is a fundamental contradiction between those two things and that is why Uplift will be legally challenging the decision to approve the Rosebank oil field. And I also don't think, I mean, this is not a fight that I think is over in that the main developer behind the field, Equinor, a Norwegian oil company, that's majority owned by the Norwegian government, another government that internationally loves to position itself as a climate change champion while uh, encouraging and actively facilitating the extraction of new oil and gas. And there's going to be a lot of pressure, I think, that Norway faces over this decision as well. And Equinor has pulled out of oil and gas developments in the past when it's faced sufficient public pressure. We saw that in Australia, for example, relatively recently. So I think that, you know, Rosebank has become a major flashpoint and and really reason for so many, not just climate campaigners, but I would say tens of thousands of people who otherwise wouldn't identify as activists to be really outraged by the direction of travel that the UK government's chosen. That framing of it is something I find quite optimistic. And I'm glad that we get to end this podcast series on on the idea that actually we don't have to give in to these thin things and they, we can change, we can create a better direction. Just from the Fraying Ties team, you know, we, we've had this podcast series um, based on this research project. We've seen it's very complicated. We've seen it's multifaceted. James and then Connor, I'd just like to hear, you know, your sort of takeaway idea that, you know, that this is we can see transitioning away from oil is complex. Can we do it on a reasonable, a short timescale, and can we do it well? Can we do it? Yes, we can. Um, yes, we can do it. And I'm optimistic because I see the speed at which engagement, public engagement, is increasingly the case on, on, the, on the oil and gas sector. If we'd been looking at this, had this podcast 10 years ago, the level of public engagement, it was minimal compared to what it is now. It has become the topic. It's 
arguably one of the main topics that's going to be the next general election is going to be fought on. And that's a remarkable shift. And it's a shift which I think I personally take a lot of optimism about from and, and I hope others do too. Brilliant. And uh, Connor, can we do it? I think we definitely can. And I think that we have lessons from the way in which we've produced oil. We don't really have very a very good legacy of North Sea oil in the UK. We certainly don't have a financial legacy the way that Norway does with their oil fund. But we have this huge lesson that whenever we leave the management and production of our resources to private hands, it doesn't work and it doesn't contribute to a public good. And so I think one thing is that we can look at the history of North Sea oil and not make those mistakes again when we develop a renewables energy sector. And a second legacy of North Sea oil is like James said, there's a certain language now and an understanding of what offshore oil looks like. People know what Campbell is and what Rosebank is, but that hasn't been an accident. That's People have dragged those places into public conversation and there's a model for doing that now. We can also do that with the finance arm we heard in the previous episode about shareholder activists, which are so crucial. So the more we know about how these five different elements of the UK oil complex work, the more, I mean, the more skill we have in being able to face them and finding a different pathway for the future. Well, that is a great place to finish. We have come to the end of this podcast series. It's all been a lot to take in. There's learning more about the scale of the oil industry is really sobering when what many of us want is the most rapid possible change. But as we heard there, understanding the full picture gives us agency. It lets us ask the right questions. It lets us vote for the most helpful policies. It lets us choose how to prioritise change in our homes and at work and how to put pressure on the system to change and improve. And after making this... I feel much better equipped to do all of that. So I hope that you all do too. So thank you for joining us on this uh, journey of exploration. This was Tides of Transformation, an oil story. It was produced and edited by Isabella Soames.